This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus chat, dealing with the emotional impact of vision loss. If this is your first time in a Bright Focus chat, welcome. Let me tell you a little bit about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus Foundation funds some of the top researchers in the world. We support the scientists who are trying to find cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share the latest news from these scientists with families that are impacted by these diseases. These Bright Focus chats are another way of sharing this information. And in that vein, we're really fortunate today to be joined by Deidre Johnson. Who, Dr. Johnston is a geriatric psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University in, in Baltimore. So Dr. Johnston, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I, you know, Some of our other chats, we've had ophthalmologists, we've had people who help on, um, you know, making your home as safe as possible. We've talked about uh, topics such as, as driving and when to continue that or, or not to continue. But this is the first time we've we've had this topic, and I'm really excited today about t- discussing the emotional impact of vision loss. So, sorry, Dr. Johnson, if we could start by, in your opinion, what do people fear the most in old age? Hi. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Michael. Um, so in my practice, I see a lot of older people. Uh, it's primarily uh, who I see as I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. And one of the themes that comes up uh, quite often is fear of losing their independence, uh, fear of losing function. Uh, and often, of course, the fear of loss of function leads to the fear of loss of independence uh, because people think if they cannot do something they always did, um, they may have to rely on other people to do it. And some people are terrified of that. And, you know, it varies from one person to another. Some people are, are, find it very anxiety-provoking. Others kind of can ease their way into a new situation like this and adapt to it. But it is an adaptation. It is a challenge. So people um, can experience actual anxiety symptoms. Uh, they can actually experience depressive symptoms. Um, how you deal with these changes... Um, is the important thing. And often having the diagnosis early enough to plan ahead, to learn about what's going on and, and be prepared can be your, your, your greatest asset. So sure. facing up and learning early uh, is one of the best ways to approach it. Well, great. Now I think that's that, that makes um, perfect sense. I was wondering, uh, you know, none of us are, all of us are getting older every day. Um, now it's you know what's the difference like you know if people get a little bit of vision loss um, you know as they age um, you know such as like cataracts make things seem dark or whatever what does that do for the for for the impact on your mood just sort of the the natural aging process you know, regardless of whether there's a, a disease or not what, what's the impact on someone's mood. So, um, for the most part, you know we get presbyopia, loss of visual acuity as we age. That isn't really a, a disease, it's not pathological, it's kind of normal, and that doesn't really affect our mood too much, it's more of a nuisance. However, uh, conditions that lead to loss of actual vision uh, can actually affect a person's mood. Um, it, in fact, uh, it, it doubles the risk of depression, and uh, macular degeneration actually accounts for 45% of low vision cases, so it is a risk factor for depression. That doesn't mean that you're going to get depressed because you have it, but it does mean that you may be at increased risk, and being aware of that is sometimes helpful too. Um, 
Sometimes people ask if uh, people with low vision, low vision develop a seasonal affective disorder where people develop low mood during the winter time when the light is low. Well, that's kind of an interesting question um, because people with low vision, the same as anybody else, can develop a seasonal affective disorder. But it turns out that um, not they, they don't experience it any more than other people because the uh, receptors in the eye that detect blue light, which is the light that's, uh, that, uh, that is involved in, in, in um, seasonal affective disorder, those, those receptors are often preserved in people with macular degeneration. And so they don't, um, it, it, you're not really at increased risk of seasonal affective disorder any more than you would have been before developing the impairment, the visual impairment. But mm. depression, yes. No, that's, that's, no, I appreciate that. And how, you know, um, you know, as these changes happen, and, and as you mentioned, the kind of the mood changes that could happen, how does somebody re-engage with, you know, activities that they've enjoyed? So there's a natural grieving period for a lot of people. Um, some people sort of take it on the chin. They're very stoic. But other people need time to grieve, and I think that's most of us. Um, you know, you have to go through a normal Accept, dealing with the loss, accepting the new situation, uh, even being sad about losing um, some uh, faculty or some function, that's normal. But what the best way to uh, cope with it is to learn adaptive techniques, to find out what's there to help you. And there are a lot of resources to help people with low vision. So empowering yourself by finding the tools, learning about the tools, using them, uh, so that you maximize your own independence. That, that's, that's key, and that can really help keep depression at bay. Um, if, if the, the other thing is that, that your doctor that has diagnosed the, uh, the eye problem needs to be communicating with other providers and can bring in other providers. Your primary care doctor can bring in other people to help you manage depressive symptoms if you develop them, such as therapists and um, OT, uh, occupational therapists, who can help you uh, adapt and help you manage the depressive symptoms and, and the anxiety that goes with it. Well, that's great and, advice to reach out, yeah. Um, yeah, and I was going to mention. Right, oh, sorry, Michael. I was going to mention a couple of uh, a specific type of of therapy called cognitive oh, great, behavioral great. therapy, which um, is uh, commonly used. It's a very widely used type of uh, talk therapy. Um, where we address assumptions and perceptions that people make in their lives. And very often when we encounter adverse situations, sometimes we make assumptions and we approach these situations in a way that actually works against us instead of for us. And what cognitive behavioral therapy does is it helps you learn to reframe these perceptions, to see these things that are so threatening and discouraging, to see them in a way that allows you to work with them and overcome them. And it's a process. It's not a, a, a one-and-done uh, treatment. It's, it's an ongoing process. But it can be very empowering because you learn the tools to recognize when you're having difficulty coping with a situation and what are the particular situations that you tend to fall into negative thinking about and then teaches you... Uh, techniques to move beyond that and to um, to cope with the situation. Yeah, no, no that, that's very helpful. And I just want to sort of uh, 
stay on that point of, of the negative thinking. Um, you know, a minute ago when you said that, you know, most, it's very common for people to have grief in a situation like this. I think another very common reaction, at least, you know, even for me on days, is just that fearing the worst, the catastrophizing. And we already we had a question from uh, Jeff from Texas who basically asked that point of, like, how do you deal with the constant thought that you might go blind? It's frightening. It's frightening for a lot of people. And one of the things that you have to do is, first of all, be informed. Find out. Talk to your doctor. Make sure that you're asking your doctor the questions. Uh, sometimes people are afraid to ask for the details because they're afraid of the answer. You're best knowing. And, you know, it's, it's not guaranteed uh, that you will go blind. The, the, as I understand it, the illness progresses at a different rate in different people. So learning to focus on what you can do rather than what you cannot do. Learning to focus on how you make your environment safer, how you make things better for yourself despite this challenge uh, can, be very, can make you feel better, can make you less fearful of what's going to come next. Because the truth of it is none of us knows what's going to come next. And, and it's not helpful to worry that maybe a little bit down the road some terrible thing is going to happen. That weakens you. So the best thing to do is learn what you can do to, to be strong and to be able to cope from day to day. And that actually helps reduce the anxiety a lot. The anxiety is very understandable, but it, you, yeah. can, you can learn to manage it, and that can make a very big difference. Dr. Johnson, I just wanted to get back to what you're saying about that honest communication um, being so important because I know that that a lot of people take take pride in in being independent and and not uh, you know never not being very uncomfortable asking for help um, and um, you know it's, I really appreciate the points uh, that that you make about that honest communication. I just want to remind our listeners that at Bright Focus we have a a, a free uh, pamphlet called Top Five Questions to Ask Your Eye Doctor and um, you know hopefully that might might facilitate a, a you know a good a good conversation, and I think related to to that, Dr. Johnston, I like that. How it's going to be very challenging for someone who's you know in the in some stage of vision loss to sort of live day to day, you know, life in the community, the stores, the supermarkets, and you know, for example, if I you know broke my leg or twisted my ankle, you would see me on crutches, and you you would provide you know sort of a lot of. Um, Courtesy and, and care and assistance if we crossed paths in the supermarket. But what about someone that, that is having some vision challenges? How does how how should they you know help themselves be a little more comfortable um, in you know when they're outside of the home? That is that can be a tough one, particularly when you're adapting to it as a new situation. I, I think the important thing is uh, to remind yourself to be calm, because if you're calm, it it reduces the likelihood that the other person is going to get irritated. Communicating with them that you have an impairment is okay too. Um, you know, you may even help them by being by allowing them to understand that that you have that impairment. Um, sometimes you you know you cannot. You, the, the truth of it is, you cannot really change other people's behavior. But by by being aware and modifying your own behavior, you can actually influence their behavior to some extent. Um, people can be very helpful if they know that you need help. So um, do not be afraid, I would say, to, to, to yeah. ask for help if you feel people are rushing you or to explain what the situation is. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And kind of related to that, 
any tips for people in terms of maintaining their friendships? I mean, at some point, you know, that that must um, be a challenge if, if people are having um, vision issues or others in, in terms of keeping, make, you know, continuing good friendships. But what do you, do you have suggestions for that? Oh, yes. That's keeping your friendships and your family contacts, uh, those are very important. Um, some people have an inclination to withdraw socially or to think that they cannot do things they used to do. And uh, one of the things that it's worth putting your energy into is fighting those inclinations. Um, your family still love you. Your friends still love you. You're still the same person. And you are there by not connecting yourself with them by not staying connected, um, they're losing as well as you lose uh, by the loss of that social engagement. In addition to that, um, you put yourself at increased risk of depression if you isolate yourself socially. Uh, sometimes social isolation goes along with physical isolation. So if you're not interacting with other people, um, you're, you're moving around less, you're less physically active. And though that combination of decreased social activity and decreased physical activity can increase your risk for other problems. So it, it reduces your cognitive alertness. Um, it, it can affect your cognitive function. So it's well worth really being aware if you're noticing the inclination to withdraw socially, if you're not feeling like doing things. Um, that you would normally enjoy because of the changed circumstances, because of the change in your visual function. And reaching out to people, if, uh, finding adaptive devices that can help you use your phone more easily, um, making arrangements with people to get places. Uh, I saw a really nice quote, um, keep playing golf your friends can watch the ball. I, <laughs> but I thought, mine wouldn't have to look that far. <laughs> exactly. I know. Me too. So I, I think that's a very good way to think about it. Um, your friends are your friends. Your yeah. family is your family. And they, that doesn't change. Uh, so don't shut them out. No, that's great. It's wonderful advice. And a lot of the research funded by Bright Focus and others into um, Alzheimer's and, and um, age-related vision diseases you know, uh, gets back to that point of the uh, importance of staying uh, mentally and physically active and, and eating well. And, and I think that you raised some really good points about how to not have uh, a vision disease um, you know, work, work against that. And yeah, what about, um, you know, uh, keeping, you know, keep, you say keeping your friends, but what about reaching out to, to new people in the community, like a, a support group, a role of a, um, uh, you know, a faith-based community or something in that line? Yes, uh, that actually is also very important. So support groups can be hugely helpful. Um, the original support groups were developed for people who had tuberculosis years ago, many years ago, and they hadn't been used as psychotherapy. They hadn't been used for people with depression or other conditions before that. And it turned out that the people who were in, involved in the support groups, despite the fact that they had this terrible illness and were, were sick because were depressed because of it, they actually all improved and their moods got better and their depression resolved. Uh, so that's where so that's where group therapy started, and and these were peer-led support groups. So um, meeting with people who are dealing with similar issues on a regular basis can be a very powerful way to cope. Uh, you're getting the support. You're talking about uh, some of the things you're going through. You're able to ask questions of people who've been through it, and you can get feedback and guidance from them. 
Um, it's it's really strongly. I would strongly recommend uh, engaging in support groups. Some churches and synagogues may have resources you don't know about until you um, and other religious um, organizations may have resources you don't know about until you ask. Um, you know, so yeah. also worth worth considering. Well, great. We actually have two questions uh, related to some of these uh, uh, depression issues that that you mentioned. One is. Um, uh, Kay from Los Angeles was wondering. You talk, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more about the, the talk therapy that, that you mentioned at, at the outset of the call. A little bit more about what that is and um, why you think it works. Or talk can't work. Ther- okay, talk therapy is another is also another name for psychotherapy, and really what that involves is meeting with a, a therapist, a mental health therapist or counselor, on a regular basis. And there are different types of talk therapy. Sometimes what a person just needs is support, and that's called supportive therapy, Um, just to touch base and uh, be supported in dealing with everyday challenges. And and there there is a time for everything, and there is a time for that. When a person is going through grief, in the acute phases of grief, that would be a time for supportive therapy. However, the most useful type of therapy, and the one that's most widely used, is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is where people learn, are helped to learn about uh, perceptions and assumptions that are working against them. And we all are inclined to make them. We're all inclined to, uh, you know, we, we get discouraged about things or we think that, you know, we, we kind of get into a mode of thinking that is, can be negative uh, because of some bad experiences or because, we've been discouraged in, in attempting a certain thing, we start to assume that that's how it's always going to go. And it can take an effort of will to see it otherwise. And it can also take a lot of support to see it otherwise. Uh, in a lot of situations, learning to see these things, these challenges, and these and I'm not talking about the big challenge here. I'm not, it, this is a big challenge, having macular degeneration. I'm talking about the little day-to-day challenges that can be just as frustrating. And, you know, focusing on the big challenge can actually get in the way. Focusing on the day-to-day issues that are difficult and challenging can be, um, can be really is where, where to start and is how to, uh, how to change things for yourself. So well, cognitive nice. behavior therapy helps you do that and helps you develop new uh, strategies and techniques so that you are feeling more in control of things. Well, that, that's great. Just a, we have a few more questions on the on the, um, the the depression angle here. One is, how can someone know the difference between uh, kind of un, uh, reg, you know um, sadness or grief about a diagnosis versus a um, uh, you know a, uh, what might be diagnosed as depression? I mean, maybe I'm not phrasing that the right way, but how does one know when they are crossing a line into a, a more serious um, condition that they need to address? Yeah. Well, that's a very important question because there is a distinction. Um, grief and loss are often associated with symptoms that are very similar to depression. And a person might have trouble sleeping, might, their appetite might drop off, they might not be interested in doing things, they might be sad, they might cry. All of that is a normal part of grief in the early stages. If those symptoms, however, persist beyond a few weeks to months, if the person becomes socially withdrawn, 
if they change their their uh, in level of engagement with people that they could be talking to or that they would enjoy engaging with, and that doesn't get better if that persists beyond weeks to months. Um, and, you know, we see this all the time in grief, but we don't see people who grieve recover from grief. When it interferes with their function, their daily function, then that's when it's depression. And your primary care doctor is is trained to, to, to recognize and treat depression, but not all are comfortable doing that. And so sometimes they will refer you to a mental health therapist to, to see if this is depression that should be treated. And, of course, you know, one of the treatments that is kind of, can be long-term or can be for as long as you need it is CBT, which I mentioned. But there are also other treatments. And, and the cutoff for using other treatments, such as medications, um, really have to do with um, how severe the depression is and how badly it's affecting you. And whether you have, you know, sometimes it's not, it's, it's depression, it's clinical depression, but it's not bad enough that medication is needed. And, you know, if you want to, Michael, did you want me to talk a little bit about the medications? Um, actually, in a second, we just had a follow-up question about that, the, the anxiety. I mean, it was, how, what, you know, talk about the importance of sleep and, and eating. Like, at some point, could this anxiety get in the way of adjusting to the actual uh, macular degeneration? Yes. And, of course, you know, anxiety and depression go hand in hand. Anxiety can occur as a symptom of, you know, dealing with a new situation, uh, and there's such a, a, a condition as adjustment disorder with depressed mood uh, that can have anxiety associated with it as well. So anxiety can, can um, it's important to manage anxiety. And one of the ways you can do that, there, there are a whole range of ways, mindfulness, uh, meditation, um, and the last thing ever you would want to do for anxiety is take medication unless the anxiety is a symptom of a more severe depression. And then there are medications that are appropriate. But great, yeah. exercise is actually good as well for anxiety. It can reduce anxiety. That's great. And, and I'd like to, you know, since you mentioned the medication, um, what about uh, people who may have concerns that some, um, uh, some medication might increase their risk of falling at the same time that their vision uh, diseases are increasing the risk of falling. Um, is that something that somebody should be concerned about? That's a very valid concern, and I actually have that concern with all of my patients. Um, so, again, this is a situation where if somebody suggests uh, prescribing medication to you, you want to get all of the information you can about that medication. You want to find out what is the medication and uh, you know how to take it, what are the side effects, and ask the question about falling. Some medications are more likely to increase your risk of falling than others. And the, the golden rule for treating depression in older people is to start low and go slow. So uh, most of us in geriatric psychiatry will, will look for the lowest dose of any medication we're considering prescribing and half it and start the person on that. Now, when you do that, there's, a, there's less of a chance of the person falling, although with these medications there always is some degree of risk. So you have to be a little bit more careful. One of the things you can do, uh, because falling is always a concern um, with, with low vision, so I think most people who have been diagnosed with low vision would already be... Um, making sure that their environment is safe. And it's a, that's an important thing to do because if you have a safe environment where you have clear paths 
to move about in the house. You have objects to hold on to that you know where they are. And you are you know about your medication. You're staying hydrated so your blood pressure doesn't drop when you stand up. Um, that will reduce your risk of falling. And that's a whole topic in itself that we could talk about for half an hour, I think. Uh, but yeah, yes, no, ask your doctor. Yeah. No, it's it's very important, and I'm glad you mentioned the changes in, in the physical environment. I think that's that's such an important part. And related to that, um, you know, if there's somebody else that that you know, a caregiver that that lives under the same roof or or visits often, how should one, um, you know, a person who's who's going through macular degeneration, perhaps some um, some uh, you know depression or or you know, issues, how should they um, interact with their caregiver to make this as, as constructive as possible? Well, I think be upfront with them about what you're going through. Um, if it, it, And make it okay for them to ask you how you're doing and make it okay to talk about it. Because for one thing, it does help to talk about it. For another thing, if a person feels that they cannot acknowledge that you're having difficulties, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't help things. So a person, you know, it, it your family, friend, or, or whoever is there with you. And I, I think most people who have impaired vision know that it's best if their family or people who are in the house with them understand that stuff can't be moved around or left lying around or left in the way. Um, that's kind of, I think, a given for most people in this situation. Uh, but with if depression is part of the picture, then your main support system is usually your friends and family. So let them know. Um, if you're trying to change your behavior, if you're working on the depression and you're trying to get keep up a level of activity, they're your biggest ally. Um, you know, keep them, they're, they're your team, uh, so keep them in the picture. Good. For persons who live alone, remember you have a telephone. Yep. Yeah, that's a great point. It would seem like in all these issues there's sort of a cloud of stigma that, that may... Um, uh, you know, uh, cover over some people, and it seems from hearing you correctly that 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 seems like through all of this is that people should try to to fight that stigma. I mean, just, how would you address Absolutely. that? Absolutely, I would totally agree with you. I think that we're our own best advocates. Anybody who has a has a um, chronic severe condition is really one of many, um, especially these days. Society is aging. And we're all we're all aging, and the more uh, open we can be about conditions associated with aging, about the challenges of aging, the more um, we can bend society in the direction I think that it needs to go. That's my personal belief, yeah. and it's what I recommend to my patients. Uh, because that. if you pretend these things don't exist, uh, they aren't accommodated. And uh, you know, I think. I believe that all of us would be better off if if um if people would acknowledge that there are that everybody's not perfect. Appreciate that. Related to that, Dr. Johnston, you mentioned support and counseling services and support and you know other type of resources. How should how can someone find uh of that information? So now I mentioned your primary care doctor might be able to refer you to a local mental health therapist. Um, there are, you know, everywhere is a bit different, and different states have their own available resources. So you could start with your primary care doctor. You could also um, go to your state uh, Department of Human Services. There are also resources uh, like the Lighthouse um, 
the Lighthouse Guild, and of course your Bright Focus uh, website is very has has wonderful information on it. And if you look for your um, local resources, your your in your own state, um, that's probably the best place to start. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, the Lighthouse Guild, and of course there's the Center for the Visually Impaired and the American Foundation for the Blind. I didn't put the websites on my list of cheat sheet here, um, yes. but there are a number of websites that people might find helpful. Great, great. Yeah, we have resources at brightfocus.org. Yes. Um, I want to turn to the, the, the top briefly the topic of hallucinations. I understand that that um, you know, that can be part of the adjustment. Is that something that you encounter in your practice? And um, yeah. You know, um, it's something we see, uh, and I, I'm sure some of the people listening might have had some experience of this. Um, up to about a quarter of people with macular degeneration, particularly uh, in the later stages, can develop hallucinations. They're visual hallucinations, and, and I think one thing to remember is that they're usually not—they're um, usually not scary. They're usually not menacing. Uh, some of them, in fact, can be quite pleasant. I've had several patients who report. Um, flowers, seeing bunches of flowers, um, and that kind of thing. So the the hallucinations, I, I think, are almost more like an illusion where your, your, your um, eyes are receiving stimuli and trying to interpret them, and they're creating bunches of flowers uh, where there aren't any because of this uh, stimulus that's being not being received um, uh, correctly. Um, so... However, if, if a person has um, menacing or scary hallucinations, that is something to... Well, obviously, any time you have a hallucination, you need to talk to your doctor about it. But if they're scary, it could, uh, it could uh, mean that the person has depression because that would be co- uh, consistent with um, other potential symptoms associated with depression. Dr. Johnson, you know, as we kind of reach the end of our time together... Do you have sort of a, you know, any kind of concluding remarks or sort of your, your big picture advice from what you've seen during your, your time as a geriatric psychiatrist that you think would be uh, useful for, for families impacted by vision disease? Um, well, I've seen a lot of people through years of dealing with these illnesses. And some of the things I've said, like allowing your family and friends to be part of the solution, not shutting them out, um, accepting when they want to help you, accepting help, asking for help when you need it, but most of all, learning about your condition, learning as much as you possibly can about it, getting accurate information, not being afraid to ask your doctors for clear information. Get somebody to write down your questions before you go to the doctor uh, so that you're prepared and get somebody to write down the answers so that when you leave there, you have something to refer back to. It's not all about what happens at the doctor's office either, but having the information, having accurate information uh, can be a big help. And don't, yeah. don't isolate yourself. Yeah, no, it's, that, is all, that is all great advice, um, both, you know, both in terms of managing the, the doc, you know, your time at a, in a physician's office, but also addressing the, the number of issues. And uh, Dr. Johnson, again, I just want to thank you so much. I think you've really um, been very helpful and very, very positive um, and appreciate your uh, you know, kind of your candor and your understanding of how how difficult these these issues are, and so I want to thank you for that. And to to our um, to our audience, thank you very much for being uh, part of today's Bright Focus chat. We have a number of resources available at brightfocus.org, and also publications that are free uh, to you through the the U.S. mail, ranging from the Essential Facts 
of macular degeneration, kind of the basics of diagnosis and, and, um, and treatment. Uh, we have a new publication about clinical trials, answering some of your questions that you may have about whether to participate. And we have materials on driving, you know, kind of help conversations within your family. And, and all that's available either at brightfocus.org. Uh, Dr. Johnston, on behalf of Bright Focus Foundation, just really appreciate the, uh, the work you're doing to, to help families um, in your own practice and through today's chat, uh, families all, all across the country. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. All right. All right, this concludes today's Bright Focus chat. Thanks again for participating. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.